Friends, if you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, I encourage you to open them to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, You can find the words on the screen behind me as we read together this morning. But before we do, I think we all know that sometimes we go through life and we just can't figure out which way is up and why things are happening the way that they are. Those times in life when you just have to sit back and you say, huh, (laughs) I didn't see that coming. And sometimes those surprises are pleasant, and sometimes those surprises are difficult. And as we navigate life, King Solomon shows us the way of wisdom, and he helps us to find meaning in these happenings of life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 12, in the, in the passage immediately preceding our passage for today, Solomon writes, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The point that Solomon is getting at is that so often when we go through life and we try to evaluate the things that are happening, we evaluate them from a limited position or a limited understanding because we don't ultimately know what is best for us. But God does. In these times of confusion, however, when we don't know what's best for us and we don't understand what's happening, Solomon points us to the fact that there are some better ways to approach those situations and some worse ways. We all want the better ways. (laughs) We want better in every area of our life. If you're a student, you want better grades. You want better food, you want better relationships, you want a better life. And here in Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon shows us the better way forward. And so follow with me as I read from Ecclesiastes 7, starting at verse 1 through 18. This is what Solomon writes. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise and to hear the song of fools, For as the crackling of the thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not... Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom 
preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise, for why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and that from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Ecclesiastes is interesting because in this book of wisdom, there are a variety of different forms of literature. And we've seen that already. Here, in Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon gives us a string of proverbs that are arranged in a particular way. And when you understand how he arranges these proverbs, it helps us understand the point that he's trying to get to, a point that helps us to find meaning in the uncertainty of life. And it begins in verse 1 with what we might call the headline. You know what a headline is in a newspaper. It's the thing that gets your attention and drives to the content beneath it. The headline of chapter 7 is found in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It's true. A good name, a good reputation is important in this life. You can put on precious ointment or a nice perfume with a few squirts of a bottle and it will add to how people perceive you. Cheap cologne or cheap perfume often smells bad, but with a few squirts of some expensive perfume, those you come in contact with will experience something quite pleasant. But you cannot so quickly put on a good name. A good name is something that is built over time. It's built over many interactions. It can't be faked. It can't be purchased. A good name comes from a person with good character. The Hebrew here in Ecclesiastes 7.1 has a little bit of a word play for us that's lost in translation, and it's something like this. Fair fame is better than fine perfume. It sounds like a proverb worth remembering. Fair fame is better than fine perfume. Fine perfume is a valuable commodity in the ancient world. But a good name is even more valuable. I wonder what people think when they hear your name. Do they think of integrity? Or do they lean toward thinking of someone that they're not quite so sure they can trust? 
When people hear your name, do they think of kindness or do they think of harshness? Do they think of someone who's cheerful or someone who is very critical in their spirit? When people hear your name, do they think of someone who's honest or do they think of someone who's prone to exaggeration? Fair fame is better than fine perfume. But the second part of the headline makes us pause a little bit, doesn't it? The first part makes sense. But to say that the day of death is better than the day of birth, that's the opposite of what we would normally assume. And the fact that these two verses are, or these two parts are coupled together in the same verse tells us in some way they're related to each other. And verses 2 through 7 help us to understand why. Verses 2 through 7 help us to understand why considering our death is actually good for us. Because we learn something from death as we look back on life. Look at verse 2. Solomon says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So he creates a picture of two houses, a house that's feasting or a party, a house that's mourning because somebody has died. And in the ancient world, it's common to go and visit somebody in the house of mourning when a friend or a family member has passed and grieve together, sometimes even for days. And he says that this activity of going to the house of mourning is more beneficial to us than the party because it makes us consider the death of our loved one. And when we do, we learn something. We learn something that we don't learn when we're at a party. We learn something that we don't learn even when we're celebrating the birth of a baby. Because birth shows us the potential of a life. But death shows us the fulfillment of a life that is well lived. Death is an evangelist. We're forced to measure our own mortality. And in a time when people want to deny that death is knocking at the door, this is a very culturally relevant message for today. People spend thousands of dollars to keep their pets alive for just a couple more years. But they all die. This last week, golf rising star Bryson DeChambeau gave his personal thoughts on skirting death. Maybe you heard it. He was talking about and interviewed about his fairly intense uh, regimen of food and drink and he's found the perfect pH balance in the water that he drinks and a variety of other things. And then he said, I'm always trying to add more value to my life in general. I mean, my goal is to live to 130 or 140. And I really think that's possible now with today's technology. I think somebody's going to do it in the next 30 or 40 years. I want humans to be better. To live to 130 or 140. 
the ambition of skirting death. And that's not to mention all of the millions upon millions of dollars that people have invested and are continuing to invest in actually making humankind immortal in their lifespan. But rather than avoid death, Solomon says that we should learn from it. And the reason why is in verse 3. Look at it with me. He says that the wisdom of death gives us gladness in life. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. One of the things that we learn from grieving and from death is that the wisdom gained by observing the lives of those who have passed actually serves to bring gladness to our own life. When you can look at the life of someone who has lived and fulfilled their life, and you do likewise, things go better for you. (laughs) Leonardo da Vinci once said, as a well-spent day brings happy sleep, so a life well-used brings happy death. Considering death helps point us to what's the most important in life. And for the believer in Jesus, of course, we know that the other thing that we learn from death is that death is the entrance into a glorious inheritance that you need not fear, brother. You need not fear, sister. Because death brings us into glory. The Apostle Paul expresses this. He says that he can't decide which one's better. (laughs) In Philippians chapter 1, life or death. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two because to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For Christians, death is the entrance into glory. That's why George MacDonald writes, how strange this fear of death is. We are never frightened at the sunset. Or C.S. Lewis who writes, if we really think that home is elsewhere and that this life is a wandering from home, why should we not look forward to the arrival? Or the Apostle Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57 says, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So death teaches us. Considering death brings gladness into our hearts as we learn. Death is the entrance into glory. Better is the day of death, Solomon says, than the day of birth. Looking ahead, we see another better that keeps us in this same line of thinking. Look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5 gives another aspect of wisdom in this life and the ability to receive correction. It says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. 
I wonder how you receive correction, how you receive the rebuke of the wise. Is it natural for you to hear correction and instinctually reject it? To defend yourself from it? To slander the giver of correction? Or do you receive it? Do you consider it? Do you change because of it? Death provides the ultimate correction. But between today and that day, God places in our lives people and relationships that continue to help us to learn to grow. And this even happens through correction for the sake of a better life. Now I want to pause right here and and just note... Notice with me that he is not talking about the person who is willing to give the rebuke. We have an overabundance of people who are willing to correct other people. Some of them wise, some of them not so wise. He's talking about how do you receive correction or rebuke. When legitimate correction is given, how do you respond? Solomon says that the sting of correction is better than the laughing approval of fools. I can think of many times through life when the sting of correction ended up being the catalyst for meaningful change. Whether the rebuke comes from a parent who just wants the best for their child, or a seminary professor, in my case, who in a back classroom in a dark hallway, shredded apart a sermon in front of the whole class because he wanted me to be better. (laughs) Or the piercing glance of my wife after some sharp words to our children because I was tired or irritable. Perhaps the hardest correction comes from the words of a friend, a loved one, after behaving in a manner that's unbecoming. How do you receive correction like that? I remember learning the lessons of correction the hard way from my high school basketball coach. He was a man who taught, a man who yelled, a man who corrected. And my thin skin had to grow thicker if I was going to survive. And I learned over the course of time, that his correction was not because he didn't like me. And it wasn't because he didn't think I was good. His correction was based on the fact that he wanted even more for me. He wanted better. And he knew that it was possible. And I still see his face and sometimes even hear his voice when I receive the words of corrections from friends or colleagues or my wife or my enemies. (laughs) That man, in many ways, gave me a pearl. He trained me for life because correction is for our good. We all receive correction when we're young and stupid, but how do you receive it when you grow older and you're still stupid? If you can't receive correction, you will not grow. That's the 
that's just the sum total of it. You won't grow in your skills. You won't grow in your relationships. You will not grow in godliness. Being corrected by a wise person is better than being surrounded by the lighthearted nature of foolish people. That's a way to have a better life. Well, at verse 8, a new section of the string of Proverbs begins, and it sounds a whole lot like the first. Look at verse 8 with me. We see that the end is better than the beginning. He says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So, when we take a big step back and we look at the chapter as a whole, we see two starting points for considering life here in verse 8. The end, consider life from the end of the thing or consider life from the beginning of the thing. And we see a bit of similarity between verses 1 and 2. Two homes, two starting points, death and birth, the end and the beginning. And we start to see how these things relate to each other and we get closer to the main point. And it's this. The wise person lives in light of the end. That's what Solomon's trying to get to, that the wise person lives in light of the end. The end of our days gives us the opportunity to pause and to go back and to consider all that we've learned along the way. But in the second half of the string of Proverbs, he mirrors the first in the fact that he goes back into the notion of character development. That when you live in light of the end, this means something for your character right now. And so verse 8, he says immediately the end is better than the beginning, and then he starts to talk about patience and pride. That because you live in light of the end, we grow in patience, verse 8 says. Or verse 9, because we consider the end, we are not quick to anger. Or verse 10, wisdom is, in considering the end, does not have us continue to look backward on life for the days that have gone by. Verse 10 rings true, doesn't it? Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Don't be the person that's always talking about how great of a football player you were in high school 35 years ago. Don't be the person who talks about how much more freedom you experienced before you were married. Don't be the person who looks back and just talks about all the joy that you had in your house when your kids were little. Don't be the person that just ruminates all the time on what life was like before COVID-19. Now, it's one thing to reminisce fondly about days gone by, but it's another thing to live in the past. And wisdom is not found in living in the past. Wisdom comes when you look forward. The wise person lives in light of the end. And the close of the chapter tells us that when you do that, it informs how you live in the present. Look at verse 13 with me. 
It's no surprise that there are plenty of things in life that we don't like. There are things that cause us difficulty, anguish, suffering. There are things in which we say, this isn't fair, or God, why are you doing this? How could you allow this? But when we live life in light of the end, it gives us a better perspective on God. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? You can't straighten out the crooked that God has ordained. There are a lot of examples of what seems to be crooked. Things in your life that you say, that just doesn't line up. That does not make sense. That is unjust. That's crooked from my perspective. And yet, God himself has ordained it. And Solomon gives an example in verse 15. The righteous die prematurely in their righteousness, but somehow the wicked prolongs his life. You could think of a hundred examples. Why is it that there are times in this life when the guy that just seems to be a scoundrel who steps over people's bodies as he climbs the corporate ladder to his wealth, why is it this guy that lives to 90 years old and enjoys all of the things that he has earned while the humble hard-working mother of three young children dies in a car accident at the age of 33. What's the example in your life? What's the example of a situation where you say, that's crooked to me? (laughs) But there's a truth, two truths really, that are found in this when it comes to trusting God. The first one's found in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, Solomon says, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God in his sovereignty ordains the good times and the hard times. And he does it for his purposes. We read at the beginning of the message, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 12, who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life in which he passes? Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Sounds a lot like this verse 14, doesn't it? We don't know what's best for us, but God does. And it might not seem good to us in the time, but in the end, wisdom in following God in faith means that we trust that God knows. We trust that God is working out all things for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And living in light of the end helps us to respond to the crooked road appropriately in the present. And that leads to the second truth. Verse 18, it's good that you should take hold of this, Solomon says. And from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. And the application is that we respond to 
God's sovereign purposes in fear, in reverence to him, in honor to him, in a pursuit of following him. We've seen that already in this book and we'll see it again in this book. That there's so much in this life that we don't know. There's so much in this life that we cannot control. There's so much that we long for but we cannot have. But we revere the God who is in control. And whether we are in the midst of prosperity or in the midst of affliction, we do not withhold our hand. Meaning we do not withdraw from our Lord. The wise person lives in light of the end. What about you? Do you live in light of the end? Do you think about how you'll be remembered? Do you think about what others will learn from you? I know that it sounds trite and it sounds cliche. You've heard it before. What will people say about you at your funeral? Some cliches aren't all bad to consider. What will the ones after us learn about life from us? Will they learn how to live wisely or will they learn how not to live? (laughs) Will they look at your life and say, that's a life filled with mistakes and regrets and broken relationships with people and rebellion against God? Or that was a life full of joy and trust and good character? Will they look and see a life that is one defined by when you got to your later years that you decided to live for yourself, that you've had enough of working for others, but that now it's your time to live for you, that you've bought the retirement vision to recreate for the rest of your days and to look back at the days gone by? Or will they see a life that continues to look to the end, continues to focus on other people and their eternal good by encouraging them toward faithfulness to the Lord through the gospel? Will they learn from your life the dangers of anger and impatience and pride or will they see the fruit of good character which is sweeter than fine perfume? Will you have shown them how to navigate the hard things in light of the end? Or will you have shown them how to react solely on how you feel in the present? I think of the example of Jesus. And if there was anyone who lived in light of the end, it was him. Who hours just before his death was feeling the weight of human sin and suffering. He was in the garden. He was sweating blood. And he prayed to his father and he asked that the cup of suffering would be taken away. If there was ever something that was crooked that God had made, it was that. That the innocent, perfect son would bear the guilt of all of the sin of all of humanity. But as Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tells us, even Jesus lived in light of the end. It says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, or in other words, the joy that was set in front of him, he was looking in light of the end, which allowed him to endure the cross, despising the shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The wise person lives in light of the end. Don Strobush was a godly man. He loved his family. He worked hard. And he followed the Lord. And like many, he passed away entirely too early from cancer. And he did so when I was in high school. Don was my uncle. And there are a lot of things that I could say about Uncle Don. Uh, He had a great laugh. He was always very kind to me. And if I'm honest, I didn't really get to know him as much as I would have liked because I was young and I had a zillion aunts and uncles. But one of the things about his life and his legacy that stick out to me was something that happened at his funeral that I had never seen before. At that point, I'd only been to a handful of funerals in my life, and all of them solemn occasions. And that day at Don Strobush's funeral, I approached the casket to say goodbye to my uncle, and there he lay in his casket in a very nice suit. I think it was a gray suit, if I remember correctly. But there was something incredibly out of place to me. He was wearing in this solemn occasion, and his very nice suit, a bright red baseball hat. And it wasn't even of his favorite team, and it wasn't a particularly nice hat. I think it was one of those hats with the mesh in the back and the foam in the front that somebody had made for him. And it was incredibly bizarre to me that such a solemn and proper occasion would find him marked by such a cheap, loud hat. And then I learned why he was buried with the hat. Uncle Don wore that hat for the last months of his life because he had lost his hair due to the chemo. The hat was made by a Sunday school class in their church. The hat was given to him from the people that Uncle Don had invested in and the people who had invested in him. That bright red hat was a sign of love. It was a sign of priorities. The hat was a sign that there was something to learn from his life and from his death, and we should pay attention to it or we might miss it. The hat was a sign that for the years before, Don had been living in light of the end. That's wisdom. The wise person lives in light of the end. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, help us to have the appropriate 
perspective on life and on death. Help us to continue to see the meaning in the things that are before us as we look to the things that are yet to come. Father, give us the ability to observe wisely the fulfilled lives of those who go before us. And Lord, may we live in fear and reverence because you see us through the situation of prosperity and you see us through the situation of adversity because of your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.